Holy God, we offer you our praise and our thanks this night as we open our Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, that prophet who began as a teenager and who did his work, your work, for his entire lifetime. We thank you for his ministry, O Lord, which touches us now through the centuries. Nearly 2,500 years later, he speaks to us. Help us to know, O Lord, that much of what he says is applicable for today, and may it shape and move our own lives. We ask your special blessing upon Karen Oy as she and her family mourn the death of her brother. We ask your blessing upon uh, Jerry Niehaus as he continues his recovery. And be with all of us as we uh, open our hearts um, and minds to your word and as we take it to ourselves like food for our souls. We pray this in your holy and most blessed name. Amen. All right, so indeed we are um, studying Jeremiah tonight. It's February 19th. Um, we're going to be looking at the transparency that is the timeline, the colored timeline that I just um, prepared for you. It's on the round table uh, between the doors. Uh, so this is that timeline. You may refer to it if you can't see this uh, screen well enough. So just a reminder to orient ourselves. Uh, we're in the Middle East. This is Israel. And Israel's 12 tribes were at one kingdom for Saul, David, and Solomon. Those three kings were rulers of all 12 tribes. The 10 northern tribes broke away in 922. They lasted about 200 years. 721, they are destroyed. The fall of Samaria. Samaria is the capital city. What empire destroyed them? Assyria. Were they nice people? They were not nice people. Um, we're not going to take any examples of what I shared or what they did. So the Assyrians uh, conquered uh, down, and they didn't do it like just one year that they decided to come conquer. They put pressure on Israel for a number of decades. And during that pressure, certain prophets like Amos and Hosea spoke to the nation, the ten tribes in the north, Israel, and they said, you're on the wrong path. We're gonna, our society is going to crumble if we don't change. They didn't change. The society ended. So Assyria was not a very nice country, and yet God worked through Assyria to bring this catastrophe to Israel. So during this time when the northern kingdom was follow, falling, there were two prophets in the southern kingdom of Judah, Isaiah and Micah, who said to Judah, look what's happening to Israel. They're getting crushed because they have not followed God. We're doing the same thing. So we need to turn around. We need to change our behavior. If you remember, Amos talked almost exclusively about social justice issues. The rich in our society have taken too much from the poor. It's almost all about that. Hosea used the metaphor of an unfaithful marriage um, to describe God and Israel. There has been unfaithfulness, and there needs to be a restoration of relationship. So you can see the difference. Amos, completely social justice-oriented, rich against the poor. Hosea, focused on relationship, God and God's people, and how to re restore that. In the southern kingdom, Isaiah and Micah mimic a lot of what Amos and Hosea have said. They have somehow heard Amos and Hosea, and we have almost direct quotes in both of those uh, writers, Isaiah and Micah. So Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 anyway, adds some things to the mix. One of the things Isaiah adds is, even though 
we're getting crushed. Israel is crushed, and Judah is going to suffer a lot too. God will save a remnant, and from the remnant, there will be a messianic age, an age of perfection. You maybe um, remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, maybe you've seen the picture of the peaceable kingdom, and a little child will lead them, and it's got a lion and a, like a, a cattle and a sheep, and they're all getting along. <clears throat> That's the symbol of the peaceable kingdom that Isaiah is describing will come, even though catastrophe is all around. So that's something this prophet adds to the mix. That wasn't part of, as much a part of Amos and Hosea. Micah is one who tends to summarize what the other prophets have done. So he's the one who says, um, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So he sort of combines all the message of the 8th century. So these are the 8th century prophets, which means the 700s B.C., B.C.E. 8th century prophets, don't look at the screen. They are Yeah, that was really good. So 8th um, century prophets are Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah. Okay. That's what we do when we teach elementary kids. We have them repeated a couple of no. <laughs> Okay. So we're at the 8th century. Now we're going to skip a big chunk of time. Look at your timeline. We don't see any prophets here during this century. Manasseh, the king here, was a real nasty king, and we think he killed off most of the prophets. We don't have any record. Of course, we don't have quite the... Um, geopolitical catastrophe going on either. So now we get down to the next big catastrophe. Uh, in about the year 712, remember the Assyrians? Those bad Assyrians? They get conquered by another empire called Babylon. So Babylon defeats them in 612 and then comes down and puts pressure on the southern kingdom. So we're not dealing with the Assyrians anymore. We're dealing with the Babylonians. Seven. 612. 612. So it's 612, not 712. So did I say 712? Thank you. You know, Steve, you were in my confirmation class, weren't you, those years ago? Yeah, he was the same way in confirmation 35 years ago. No, he was a great, great student. So, okay, so. <laughs> so 612, um, right here. Um, is when the Babylonians kind of defeat the Assyrians, and then they put pressure on the southern kingdom right away. So we're going to deal with these um, major prophets, Jeremiah tonight. Huldah is a woman prophet who doesn't have a book in the Bible, but she's mentioned here as one of the female prophets. Um, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, we'll talk about them all in one week. Ezekiel will take us two weeks to talk about um, him. Now, <clears throat> Those of you who will look at this online, I have a number of transparencies or slides that tell the history of this period. For example, here's one, Jeremiah, an overview. And I've written out um, a lot, but there's like six or seven slides like this with different periods. And I'm not going to read through them all. Um, it's going to take too much time. I probably shouldn't even show you, but... Um, 
maybe we will. Here's an overview of, of the themes in Jeremiah. Remember how Amos was social justice, Hosea was that relationship business, Isaiah adds the messianic age. So Jeremiah adds his own specific things as well. Um, his call is very significant. It's very helpful for young people because Jeremiah was a teenager when he was called. And he says to God, I'm too young. No one will listen to me. We'll read that in just a few minutes. He was anti-clerical, which means he was against the clergy. He did not like the clergy. He's from a little town called Anathoth, and that's where one of David's high priests had to go when the kingdom went to Solomon. So there is um, the Levitical priesthood. Do you remember the Levitical priesthood? Levites? Yes? Okay, so... Jeremiah is of that descent, but they got kicked out. They got kicked out of the temple, and a new line of priests came on called the Zadokite. Under the first priest was Zadok. So Jeremiah is a descendant of the people who got kicked out. Do you think he's going to be anti-priest? <laughs> yeah, he's anti-priest. So he, he kind of carries a grudge, although you never really... You know, read. He doesn't say that, but we kind of know the history. So he's anti-clerical. He's against the priests. He uses um, certain symbolic actions to make his point. Um, symbolic action. I'm trying to think of one. So there was a a guy named Dan Erlander who um, went up to Holden Village. He, taught at Holden Village. Dan Erlander was kind of the quietest little man you'd ever want to meet. And he was going to do a Jeremiah sermon. And one of his symbolic actions, Jeremiah, was to take an earthen vessel, a pot. And he came in front of the people in his sermon, and he threw it on the ground, and the pot broke into all kinds of pieces. This is what's going to happen to Judah. Because you are not changing your country. You're not changing your society. I'm going to crash it to the ground. And so Dan Erlander, who talks in a nice, gentle voice, tries to be like Jeremiah. And he said, and the word United States is like that too. And this is what's going to happen. And he threw the pot down. And instead of breaking, it just went plop. Because <laughs> it wasn't fired enough. So it just was like clay. And it's just, so everybody, he was trying to be really serious. And everybody starts laughing. So, so my point in bringing that up is that sometimes in sermons you can use a symbolic action and people remember that longer than the words. So it's not just the words that we have from Jeremiah, it's some of his actions, and that was just one of them. Um, Jeremiah, and this is um, in bold type here, Jeremiah's confessions. He is the only prophet who shares with us his personal feelings in very dramatic way. And they're almost always laments. A lament is something where you are upset, you're hurt, you're confused, you're angry, um, you're crushed. And he actually tells his listeners how he's feeling. Um, that doesn't happen very often. It, it, it doesn't happen in my sermons very often. So. Um, and then it also includes hope oracles, which are inspired by Isaiah. Um, there's hope for the future. So those are kind of the big overall themes. Back to the timeline to show the various kings here. 
And I, actually, I'm going to talk us through this rather than read all those slides. But if you ever go to the website, those slides are going to be available. You can read them on the Jeremiah page of the website. So here we are, Manasseh. He was a bad king. He must have killed off all the prophets. We have Jeremiah becoming a prophet in 626 to 582. It's a long, long career. Um, Josiah is when Jeremiah became uh, a prophet. Josiah was a very good king. In 621, he did a major reform. They discovered the book of Deuteronomy while he was a king, and he tried to reform the country. A little bit too late. Jehoahaz, forget about him. Jehoiakim um, is someone who paid taxes to the Babylonians, and he thought to himself, you know, they're, they're kind of late getting their taxes. They're not very efficient empire. I think I'm going to withhold the taxes. How do you think Babylon responded to that? Not very well. So they came, they came crushing him down. And in 609, um, it, it, 10 years later, Jehoiakim, who started withholding taxes, the Babylonians came down. And right in 598, Jehoiakim conveniently dies while the Babylonians are surrounding the city. His 18-year-old son, Jehoiachin, has to take the throne. Two months later, the city falls in 597. It doesn't get destroyed, but it gets captured, and all of the white-collar people are taken into captivity eight or 900 miles over to Baghdad, Babylon. Baghdad and Babylon are right next to each other. So any of you who have a white-collar job, you're gone. So why do you suppose the Babylonians decided to take the white-collar workers? They'd use them, true. But also, they're the ringleaders for resistance. So they're the ones who got up front and talked, let's hold back our taxes. So it was in the Babylonians thinking that let's get those ringleaders out of there, and we will um, leave the blue-collar folks, and we can control them better, which actually didn't work out so well. Because 10 years later, Zedekiah, who is the king, does the same thing. The Babylonians come back. And Zedekiah, if you remember, we talked about this about a month ago. Um, the Babylonians now circle the city again. They broke into the city walls. They knocked the walls down. They burned the temple down. They took the Ark of the Covenant until who found it? Harrison Ford found it many years later. So, yeah, that's how it goes. And if you remember, Zedekiah now tried this rebellion, and he... he Lost, and the Babylonians put his sons in front of his eyes and did what? Killed his children in front of his eyes and then did what to Zedekiah? They punched out his eyes. So welcome to the Babylonian Empire. So that takes us to 587. So in 587, the country is destroyed. It's called the Babylonian Exile. It will last until 539. So Jeremiah is a prophet during all of this turmoil. And his writing will go sort of chronologically according to what's going on in society. Um, so I think we're ready to look at the text um, and uh, work through part of this. I'm going to go real quickly through these slides. So these will be on the website. There's an overview. There's chapters 7 through 20. There's chapters 21 through 29. I'll tell you what's happening there. 
chapters 34 to 30, 45. Actually, I think that should be 34 to f 35. I think I'm wrong there. Um, and then um, an overview and the entire book, 52 chapters. Anybody get the entire thing read? Oh, oh good, very good. Um, all right. We'll pause right there. Chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin. Benjamin is right next to Judah. Judah and Benjamin are one country now. Judah has swallowed up Benjamin. Um, Bethlehem is right there. So Bethlehem would be located in the Benjamin territory. Verse 2. To whom the words of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah. Okay, so this is how they make their dating. So we're talking about 626 or so. I already showed you King Josiah. Actually, let's just put that timeline up there again. Um, and then uh, it goes on. It, verse 3. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is the Babylonian captivity. This is the call process. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, so already you get a sense, you know, the other prophets, they didn't write in first person as much. You guys know what first person, I? The other prophets are they or third person. Here we've got first person. So he's already ready to bear his soul to us. Before I formed you, this is what the Lord said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, or woe, Lord, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy or a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And you just wonder about God's tone of voice right there. And you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. A couple of visions follow that. Um, this follows a pattern of how God works. Um, Abraham and Sarah, were they great and mighty, faithful people? No. Moses, what was his problem? He stuttered, right? He was, he was not a really good person. David was unfaithful. You know, all the prophets were not the high and mighty. They were ordinary people. And here we have, you know, I'm thinking a 15-year-old uh, who's being called. <laughs> well, the way the Bible says it, it's a man of unclean lips. Yes, okay. <laughs> oh, you've, you've taken this six times. You've never said that before. Okay, so um, the rest of that chapter, there are a couple of visions confirming. Um, over to chapter 2. This whole chapter sort of goes together, and, and it's, a, it's a, like a big poem. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it to get his style. Um, 
Chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim to the hearing in Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. What is their youth? Your love as a bride. What is that? How you followed me in the wilderness. Okay? So they're looking back to the wilderness wandering, those 40 years, as a wonderful time when people were close to God. We just read that a few weeks ago. Was it such a time? It wasn't such a time, but they're hearkening back to it. Oh, if America could only go back to the 1950s. You know, everything would be right for the world. You've heard that kind of thing. You romanticize things from the past. Camelot, um, you know, or 1950s was a terrible time, especially if you were a black person. You know, that was a terrible time. Um, Okay, so, but he's romanticizing the past. Uh, Verse 8. Or verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord the first time of his harvest. All who ate of it um, were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. When they said that, it's when they came into the land and they started making their own harvest. In translation, they got a really good job, you know, and they're making really good money. And, you know, there's no time to go to church anymore. Or, you know, there's no time to pray anymore because I'm so busy with all of this other. And then when the cancer diagnosis comes, I mean, you're on your knees again. Do you follow the wilderness wandering? You are not, you know, it's a tough time for you. Um, You get settled, you have an easy life, and it's not so tough. Um, Okay, any hands, questions? Okay, so chapter 2, that's just a, a little flavor for what's there. There's a reference here in uh, verse 14. I'm going to read a little bit of that. Chapter 2, verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a plunder? The lions have roared against him. The lions refer to Assyria. That was their symbol. So Assyria has roared against Judah. Remember, Assyria earlier had conquered a number of Judah's cities, but not Jerusalem. So that has come down upon them. They have made the, his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the people of Memphis, that's not Tennessee. That is <laughs> Egypt. That's Egypt. Egypt and Talfanes um, have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God while he led you in the way? What then do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the water of the Nile? Or what by gain by going to Israel, drink the waters of the Euphrates. So what they're referring to there, and to kind of expand this so you understand what's going on, is that Judah is making alliances with Egypt. So they went down to Egypt, and they made an alliance, and part of that was a ritual of drinking that, the Nile water. So it was like a contract. And the, the criticism is, You know, if you would get back to justice and peace and tranquility and kindness and compassion, your society would be strong. Instead, what you do, you look for the next country with the biggest weapon. So you go down to Egypt, and they've got weapons. You make an alliance with them. Maybe we can hold back the Babylonians. And Jeremiah says, that's no way to build your society. You know, just look at the world prior to World War I. When all these alliances were being made, 
and all these countries were looking for the next biggest country to offer their military power, then we'll be safe. And look at Switzerland, who did none of that. And we're, do you follow the, what the criticism is here? Okay, so that's a, a criticism of the politics. And again, a reminder that almost all the prophets here are about political things going on in the society. We can learn personal things from this, but we have become so individualistic in our understanding of faith and religion that we miss the point that it is almost always communal, corporate, political in the Bible. So I have to really emphasize that for us. Okay, so that's chapter 2, chapter 3. Uh, Josiah is still king, and this chapter is a call to repentance. I'll just read a little bit of it. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? I read that to remind you of where do you think Jeremiah got that idea? From Hosea. Okay, that's Hosea's thing. So he uses that metaphor that Hosea used to describe Judah. Okay, so that whole chapter, chapter 3, is about returning, inviting people to return. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, we continue this theme of please return. If you return, O Israel, says the Lord. Is the word if a word that I like very much? No. No. Because you know what comes next. <laughs> then. If. Then. If you return, O Israel, says the Lord. If you return to me. If you remove your abominations from my presence and do not, um, do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, then nations shall be blessed by him, and by him they shall boast. So you can see that the prophets are steeped in this Deuteronomist theology. If you do this, then you will be safe. Rather than what I try to emphasize with the Ten Commandments and many other parts of Scripture, because God loves us, therefore we respond a certain way. So he's speaking from the Deuteronomist point of view. If you do this or if you don't stop doing that, you can return to God. Um, here's a different way of preaching it. Judah, we are surrounded by enemies, but you are a wonderful culture. You are a culture of peace and compassion and justice. Continue to live with peace and compassion and justice, and the world will see you. It may take a long time, but maintain who you are as a people because God loves you. Therefore, in time, the world will change. Instead, they embrace the Deuteronomist way of thinking, blessing and curses. If you follow the law, you get blessed. If you break the law, you'll get cursed. So if you don't return to the Lord, you're going to get crushed. But if you do return to the Lord, then you get a blessing. You follow the... And most of the prophets are steeped in the Deuteronomist. You can see I'm really editorializing on this. So, um, um, Chapter 4. Chapter 5. Verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. 
Look around, take note, search its squares, and see if you can find one person that acts justly and seeks truth so that I may pardon Jerusalem. What do Christians do with that? One person so that others might be redeemed? Yeah, <laughs> Christians see Jesus in that kind of thing. But this is a different way of, of going about it. So we've just talked about Jeremiah describing God is going to crush people if they don't turn around. Yes? And then all of a sudden we have a safety valve here. Yet if one person can act justly, I will redeem all. This is a bit of a new idea here, except in, remember in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, there was this negotiating back and forth with God if there are 10 righteous left. So that kind of introduced us to it, and now we hear it again, that if there is a remnant of righteous, God will redeem, will bring back the whole community. And so Christians really build on that, and we take that to be Jesus building a new community. Other people read it differently uh, than that. Okay. Um, chapter 5, verse 7. Right after um, Jeremiah, who's speaking for God, talks about, oh, if I could just find one person to redeem, verse 7 is, are these words. This is Jeremiah speaking for God. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of the prostitutes. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, and each neighbor for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? So um, we're not talking about literal prostitution or adultery. We're talking about adultery with other gods, uh, chasing other gods. But the tone of voice is what I wanted to get at here. Jeremiah changes God's tone of voice from, oh man, I wish I could find one person so that I could redeem, to how can I pardon them? I'm going to crush them. So you've got different sermons can come different ways. And they're, they're side by side, the same chapter, but you've got to know they're from different sermons. So, I mean, you've been in different churches and even heard the same preacher preach with a different tone of voice and a different purpose. So we're getting those mixed together here uh, in the text. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 12. A reference here. They, and you don't have the reference, but that's to the, the priests. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No evil will come upon us. We shall not see the sword or famine. The prophets are nothing but wind. Um, that's the prophets who are speaking a different word. Now, we've got... Um, hundreds of thousands of people living here. I mean, it's a big country. And Jeremiah is not the only person speaking for God. Just like today, we have all kinds of churches, all kinds of preachers. They did too. So they had the priests in the temple. They had other prophets who were standing up and speaking out and saying, you know, don't worry. God promised that God would take care of us and Jerusalem would never fall There'd be someone of David's line on the throne forever. So don't worry. I mean, Jerusalem was threatened years ago by the Assyrians. 
and they're going to threaten us again, but God's going to save us in the end. Jeremiah says, don't believe those people. They're telling you a falsehood. Jerusalem is going to be crushed and fall. So that's the difference between Jeremiah and Isaiah. Chapter 7. Oh, boy. We're in chapter 7, and we're about 40 minutes into the class here, so you're going to have to crank it up here a little bit. Um, This is one of my favorite chapters uh, in the text, um, and I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. What's the Lord's house? The temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah. You can picture them on the steps. You that enter these gates to worship, worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Verse 4 Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not, it goes, you you know, then is coming, verse 10. And then shall come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place in Shiloh. Okay, Shiloh fell. So um, this is really an important message for us. So he's standing in the temple, Jeremiah is, and the people are out in front, like you're sitting in front of me now. And Jeremiah says basically, You come to church, you come to temple, and you say, we will be safe. God is watching over us. We can keep doing what we're doing because God, in a sense, endorses it. God supports it, and God promises that nothing will happen to us even if we live with these abominations. And then he says, you are turning this house into a den of robbers. What happens in a den of robbers? Not in the den. They're safe in the den. When you go out and rob, you go out and rob outside the den. You go out and rob, then you come back to your den, and you're safe. It's your safe place. So what's being said here is that the temple is becoming the safe place, the den. You can go out into the world, you can come back, and you can be tapped on the head, oh, you're wonderful for being here in church. You're doing your thing. And if you want to even push it further, you can listen to a priest or a prophet tell you that what you're doing is not so bad. you can seek out religious underpinnings for your political points of view, for how you do your business, for how you live your life. Do you follow? And that happens all the time. 
mean, it happens today. We gravitate to a situation that tends to endorse our previous held beliefs. And preachers tend to conform to what the congregation or the people want to hear, often. And so that's what's being said here by Jeremiah. You're going to the temple just to feel safe and to, to feel like, well, what we're doing isn't so bad. And Jeremiah says, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Are you, are you with me on that? I, again, I'm editorializing a little bit here, but I hope you don't take this too far and think about the present day. So the question is, and I should have a microphone for you, but the question is, Jeremiah's up front making this big confrontation. Why do they listen to him? You know, you know what, why don't they do something to him, correct? Well, they do. They do something to him, especially the political leaders. And here's a transparency that shows Jeremiah in the bottom of a well. So he is such an um, aggravating prophet that the king has to put him in the bottom of a well that he's going to die down there. So he's down at the bottom of a well, and he's looking up. You can see the circle there looking up into the sky. And some of his um, symbolic metaphors are in this. There's a, a boiling pot coming from the north. You can see that. And there's, a fi there's figs on that. It's a sim we'll talk about that later. Um, you can see the, um, the, the words, a scroll. One of the kings um, took Jeremiah's writings and systematically cut the scroll and burned it. Cut it, burned it, cut it, burned it, cut it, burned it. And the final circle is another one of his um, metaphors is that he put a yoke, you know, for an oxen. He put it on himself. And he said, this is what's going to happen to Judah. You will be, um, you'll be a yoke put upon you. So all of this, including the preaching that uh, Bill just referenced, did cause people to stay away from Jeremiah. He was ostracized. And the king actually threw him in the bottom of a well. Some people pulled him out of it. Um, but he was um, on the fringe of society, and yet we have his words today. Does that speak to your question? Okay. Other questions or comments? Okay. Um, so he goes on. The rest of that chapter, he talks about Shiloh. Um, Shiloh is a location where the Ark of the Covenant used to be, and he's making the point that just because the Ark of the Covenant is here doesn't mean that Jerusalem is safe. Shiloh fell. It had the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines still took over Shiloh. So he's saying Jerusalem's going to fall. Um, over to chapter 8, verse 13. 8.13. When I wanted to gather them, says the Lord, there are no grapes on the vines, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So um, it's a metaphor, and the reason I just highlight this is that, you know, in, in the New Testament, and I can't remember exactly the verse, I guess it's Luke 13, verse 7, Jesus uh, comes upon a fig tree that has no fruit, and he curses the fig tree. Remember that? Okay, and it's like, this is weird. What, what's going on? Well, he's hearkening back to this passage in Jeremiah where the metaphor is that Israel or Judah is supposed to be like a fruit tree bearing fruit. We're supposed to be a community of kindness and compassion and justice and taking care of the wounded in our midst. 
and yet we're bearing no fruits at all. It's empty. There are no figs. There are no grapes. There's no kindness. And so he curses that tree that produces no kindness, no fruits of the Spirit. And so Jesus is saying that too in his time when the same things are happening. So that's uh, why I bring that up. Okay. Um, there's a song in chapter um, 8, verse 22 referenced here. Is there no balm in Gilead? Does everybody know that song? There is a balm in Gilead. So Gilead is a location, and they have um, some medicinal um, oils that come from there, from a tree. And it's like a, a rhetorical question. Yes, there is balm in Gilead. Um, I just bring that up as an interesting note. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. This is how we get through Jeremiah. Um, <laughs> chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 18. I want to show you my Bible here where I have highlighted different sections called laments. There's going to be seven laments, and I highlighted each one so I know where they are when I come to them. So this is the first of the laments. They're, sometimes we call them Jeremiah's confessions. He's sharing his soul. So it goes from verse 18 to the end of that chapter. Chapter 11, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Let's read a little bit of him bearing his soul. It was the Lord who made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their evil deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I did not know it was against me that they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Okay, that's speaking to Bill's comment. You know, Jeremiah is being pretty harsh here. Doesn't, aren't there any consequences? Oh, yeah. And he's talking about this now. Nobody likes me. They're trying to cut me down. I'm a tree trying to produce good fruit, but they're trying to cut me down. Um, let us cut him off from the land of the living. Kill him, so that his name will no longer be remembered. Verse 20. But you, Lord of hosts, you judge righteously, who try the heart of the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them. Now, I mean, he's, that's not a very savory characteristic. For to you I have committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord. And the Lord responds. So you just heard what he said. You know, everybody's out to get me. And Lord, get them first. <laughs> okay, I mean, he's like not holding back his deepest feelings. Like, you don't have to tell the truth on this. But have you ever felt a little bit like that? Yeah, I think he's just being honest uh, with human, human feelings. So the second big lament begins in chapter 12, verse 1. It goes over to verse 6. So I've got it highlighted. I've got lament number 2. So it's verse 1 through 6. And this is um, something, Chuck, you mentioned to me during break time last time, um, the question of, you know, the Assyrians, they're pretty awful people, and yet is it true that God is working through these awful people? You know, how, how can we reconcile that? You know, God working through the Nazis of that period? So here is one of the first times the Bible is starting to critique that. Um, it's really critiquing the Deuteronomist theology. Listen to what Jeremiah says. You will be in the right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you. But let me put my case to you. 
Why does the way of the guilty prosper? That is, the Assyrians. That is, the Babylonians. Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then you could go on and talk about, you know, people who misuse wealth or whatever. You plant them and they take root. They grow and bring forth fruit. You are near to, in their mouths, yet far from their hearts. They talk a good story, but their heart is not close to God. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test me. My heart is with you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the wickedness of those who live in it and the animals and the birds swept away? And it goes on from there and um, describes catastrophe. But the point of this one is it's a challenge to this Deuteronomic, Deuteronomistic theology. And then we have, um, after that lament, we have the Lord changing a tone of voice. And let's hear God's voice. I, and this is God speaking. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. This is what God's saying. I have given the beloved my heart into the hands of her enemies. Okay, the challenge has come. Why do the Assyrians get all this? Why do the Babylonians succeed? Why are they about to conquer us? And then God says, oh, what have I done? I've given my own people over to the enemy. And that's what's being said here. Verse 8. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. That is Jeremiah. Therefore, I hate her. So he's already changing. He's going from how can I abandon her to, oh, she was mean to me. That is Israel or Judah. Verse 9. Is the hyena greedy for my heritage at my command? Are the birds of the prey all around her? Go assemble all the wild animals. Bring them to devour her. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. So, and we'll keep reading. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. That is, these wild animals, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land it is made desolate, but no one lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, spoilers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other, and no one shall be safe. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They, have, they shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So you tell me um, the tone of voice here. I mean, if you're the director of a movie of this scene... You can have God going, oh, what have I done? And then change God's mood to, yeah, but I had to, and this is, this is their own doing. Or you can have God throughout the whole thing going, oh, they've been laid desolate, and all these things have come and destroyed them. I'm so sad about this. So you can kind of say it both ways. Um, I don't know. I find it really interesting to look at that. So. Um, Chapter 13 is one of the symbolic actions. Um, uses a linen cloth as part of that. Chapter 14, the people have a big lament here. Chapter 15, we have the third big lament, and I've marked this off in my text. Chapter 15, verse 10. Woe is me, verse 10, 15, 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife, 
and contrition to the whole land. I have not lent nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, surely, it goes on from there, verse 15, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and bring down retribution for me on my persecutors. goes on for there, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you turn back, I will take you back. And it goes through verse 21, similar to the other laments. Do you find anything common in the laments here? Mitch? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks, David. Yeah. Here comes the microphone. Say it again. As soon as he gets it turned on. <laughs> Go for it. All right. It seems like there's a focus on the personal hardships that Jeremiah is suffering for yeah. being a prophet. Oh, I'm saying these things and everybody's mad at me now. What, when do I get something for it? When, when are you going to make it good for me? Do we find this helpful for someone in the Bible to share their personal anguish? <laughs> that, I, mean, is it, I mean, it's something new. We really didn't get this from Amos. You know, Amos didn't talk like this. And I think, Ben, you want to say something too? Okay, so kind of a similar thing. Other... Feelings around hearing the laments. If you were to write a lament, some, some years I've had people write their laments. Then I collect them, and take a look, and trying to figure out the handwriting. I don't know, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what would be a lament that would be kind of like completely honest? I mean, I don't think we are even honest with ourselves, usually. And here we have Jeremiah, who, you know, probably knew we'd be reading this today, 2,000 years later, and he tells us these mean things that he was thinking. Yeah. Um, a mother's lament might be, you know, she does all these things and nobody is saying thank you or whatever else. And it's like, I love you all, but I hear nothing back. Yeah. And yeah. now <laughs> yeah. I'd like to, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other laments? That was pretty courageous. Way to go. Mitch, I think you better listen to that. <laughs> it's okay. All right. <laughs> She's sitting right between both. So that's a, that's a good example. Are there other examples that? We'll go here first. Yeah. I think it makes Jeremiah very human, and yeah. it gives us something that we can relate to directly in the Bible. A lot of it is, you know, history lessons. This yeah. is more of a personal documentary of yeah. his walk with the Lord. Yeah. Good. probably go through this through their whole working career I've worked so hard on this and nobody's appreciated it and yeah. or you know how could you turn down this idea it's a great idea kind of a thing I mean it's just kind of along the same lines as that you know I've worked so hard on this yeah yeah well you know that's kind of what I thought we would say and and get 
but what I find amazing is that he keeps going. He keeps doing it. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I actually think of Martin Luther King Jr., who did not want to do what he, wanted, what he did. You know, he, he became part of the, the bus boycott because he was the youngest preacher in the town. He was single, and he had nothing to lose. That's why they chose him. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to go back to seminary and be a professor. So he got thrown into this, and throughout his career, he didn't want to do any of that. But it's like he's like Jeremiah. You have this fire in the belly. You can't stop. You can't not do it. And it's like, it's like in some ways, Martin Luther King Jr. was upset with God for giving him that fire. And that's what Jeremiah is. He's upset. Why did you do this to me? Why did you give me this passion to try and change the world? And, and uh, I, I want to get rid of it, <laughs> but I can't. And so he curses the Lord a number of times, and you'll see some of the other laments. And I share that with you because um, this is our story too. You know, we can, we can relate to this as our story. Okay, chapter 16. Um, let's see, we're getting close to break time. Um, one more lament, lament for chapter 17, verse 14 through 18. 14 through 18, and then we'll stop, and we'll take a little break. Um, I'll just read a little bit, 14. Help, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. See how they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come, but I have not run away from being a shepherd in your service. Just what I said nor have I desired the fatal day. You know what came from my lips. It was before your face. Do not become a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be shamed. And he he gets after the persecutors again. So um, his laments change over time. Um, And we'll take a little break there. It's 8 o'clock. So why don't we take five, six minutes, stretch, talk to somebody you don't know, um, restroom.
You have overpowered me and you have prevailed. That's actually the word rape is overpowered. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He was put in um, stocks for a while. You know what that is? You ever been to Williamsburg? You've got, you can put your hand and head in there. Um, For wherever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all the day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, that's God. Then within me, there is something like burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. I cannot, for I hear many whispering. Terror is all around. Denounce him, and it goes on from there. Um, Verse 13. Sing to the Lord, praise to the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the, need, of the needy from the hands of the evildoers. Okay, the last big lament begins in verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born. This is a pretty significant one. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed is the man who brought the news to my father, saying, a child is born to you, a son, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Pretty heavy duty, okay? And that's the final big lament, and I've kind of marked those off there. So if you ever get to the point of really having a rough day, you know, just go to (laughs) chapter 20, verse 14, and reread Jeremiah, and uh, it'll put things in perspective a little bit. Um, Okay, so we have chapter 21 now. We're we're not even halfway through. Um, Zedekiah now becomes king. It's that interim 597 to 587 that we talked about. And we're going to kind of just move through this very quickly. Chapter 22, um, chapter 23, um, 24. Chapter 24 is one we'll talk about. I'm going to read a little bit here. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. This was after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jehoiachin, that's Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the artisans and the smiths, and had brought them to Babylon, the white-collar folks. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs the good figs very good and the bad things very bad so bad that they cannot be eaten then the word of the lord came to me saying thus says the lord god the god of israel like these good things so i will regard as good the what the exiles from judah the ones who went to babylon whom i have sent away from the place to the land of the chaldeans that's the babylonians and i'll i'll pause there um So you've got the dream, the metaphor. So you've got good figs that are the exiles in Babylon. Who are the bad figs? The ones who are left. Now, that whole idea is going to really take root with the exiles in Babylon and when they finally return. Let me give you a little preface to this history. 
So we have the good figs, quote, the ones who went into exile. Why do you suppose they are the good figs? Close. The ones that are what? Yeah, that's correct, but why would God say that? According to this Deuteronomist theology. They're not resisting. They're the ones being punished. They're the ones who are now being punished. They're being cleansed. It's like their purgatory. Okay, so they are now going to be the good figs because God has wrought God's vengeance on those people. And so, at least according to this metaphor. So what's going to happen in the next few weeks, well, <laughs> years for them, weeks for us, is that the good figs are going to come back from captivity in the year 539 and following. A new empire rises. They come back, and there are still Jewish people, Samaritan people, other people living. The Assyrians had imported lots of folks. There are still lots of folks in the land who are worshiping Yahweh. The temple is down, the walls of the Jerusalem are down, and the exiles come back, and they think of themselves as the good figs, the chosen ones, the ones whom God favors. Can you see any potential problem with that? <laughs> that is exactly what's going to happen when they return from exile. And there's going to be tremendous conflict between the purebloods, I mean, just like Harry Potter, I mean, it's just like Harry Potter, <laughs> and the muggles, okay? So you're going to have that going on, and that's the context of the story of Ruth and Naomi. So you're going to get a preface of that. So Ruth and Naomi, which is going to be one of our lessons we're going to read during Lent about their sojourn, about their travel, but the story is really about Ruth, who is a Moabite, non-Jewish, bad fig. She's a bad fig. And yet she becomes the ancestor of David. And she shows her faithfulness, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge. We think that's so sweet. We don't think of it as coming from a bad fig. So here is an example of the Bible critiquing the theology coming from a different part of the Bible. So Ruth, the book of Ruth, is critiquing this theology where the people come back, and in, when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll see that we must even have our men divorce any women who are not Jewish. They all must get divorced, and if you've had children, they're gone too. We can only be with our own. Coming from this whole theology that Jeremiah introduces us to, the good, the good figs versus the bad figs. And then the Bible raises its hand from the back row and says, and this is where Jonah comes in too, and what about Ruth? She's a Moabite, and she is good. And what about Jonah? What, what's the story with Jonah? I'm, I'm already giving away my lecture for a few weeks from now, <laughs> but as long as we've started here. So Jonah, you know, he gets swallowed by what? Well, it's a fish. It says fish. It never says whale. He gets swallowed by a big fish. That's all we think about. Well, Jonah was supposed to go to Assyria and convert them. Were the Assyrians nice people? Were they ever converted? No, of course not. But the story is about God sending Jonah to the very worst figs possible. 
and God wanting to reclaim the worst figs. Where we just had this story where the exiles are the good figs and the bad figs are out there. And we need to avoid the bad figs. Otherwise, we'll get contaminated too. Do you see how the Bible is? Anyway. No, this is not about the ten tribes right here because the... Jonah is not a literal story in the least. Not a literal story in the least. It's all about trying to show that God is concerned about bad figs as well as good figs. That's the point of Jonah. And thank goodness that God is concerned about us bad figs. I mean, that's a very much a gospel thing. Um, but it's very subversive to other parts of the Bible. Chapter 24, chapter 25... Chapter 27. Um, chapter 28. Chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to the Babylonians in exile. And it goes, chapter 29, verse 10. I'll read from there on. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah is writing a letter. He never goes to Babylon, but he sends a letter to the exiles in Babylon and says, don't come, think about coming back too soon. Stay there and take your punishment, and after 70 years, you can come back. So he predicts 70 years. It's not quite that long, but it's um, about that long. Chapter um, 30 and 31 probably come from a bit later in our time periods. They're probably off kilter. We've had a lot of um, angry God, crushing God, God um, lamenting, Jeremiah lamenting. Here we have an example of some hope inspired by Isaiah, I think. Remember, messianic hope? So here we have what's called the Book of Consolation in chapter 30. And it probably comes from much later in history. So I'll read a little bit of it. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you for the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will do what? Restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I'll bring them back to the land and I will, that I gave to their ancestors and they shall take possession of it. Hence, you know, 1948, people would quote this passage and um, the Jewish people were able to come back to Palestine. And it goes on from there. And that entire chapter is hope and positive. Chapter 31 is just the same. What will that day look like? Um, chapter 31, verse 9. With weeping there shall come and with consolation I will lead them back. I will let them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. And I have become a father to Israel and Ephraim. Ephraim is the northern kingdom, is my firstborn. Verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children and refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And God's going to comfort them, but that's a reference to Bethlehem and the 
um, the innocents who are killed by Herod. Um, verse 27. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring evil, so I will watch over them and build to plant, says the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all will die for their own sins and the teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. And this is a little bit strange. Okay, what that refers to is the parents have eaten sour grapes or the parents have become bad figs or the parents have been bad parents. And the children also suffer for what the parents have done. So their teeth are set on edge. The parents eat sour grapes, but it's the children who suffer. So it's a, it's a, do you remember Achan when he took money or all the treasure when they um, invaded Jericho? And he took and he buried his treasure and he was punished for that. He lost his life, but who else lost their lives? The whole clan. The whole clan was gone. There's something called corporate responsibility. Everybody was responsible. Your whole clan is wiped out because you're infected with this thievery. So what's being said here is, okay, we're going to have individuals responsible for themselves. The parents' teeth are set on edge. The children suffer for it. Not anymore. If you eat sour grapes, your teeth are going to set on edge, not just your children and your clan. So this would be opposed to Achan. Okay. Maybe this is where we're going to end here. Um, chapter 31, verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they will all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Um, so, we continue this um, positive sort of feeling in chapter 32. We have Jeremiah buying a field right in the midst of the siege. I mean, would you buy property if your country's being bombed and you have people coming in? Well, he does. And I'm going I'm to pause there for a minute and just share with you how many of the prophets will initially have a word of condemnation when the people seem oblivious to... Um, the injustice in their midst. And so the prophets are pointing their finger. And then catastrophe happens to the people, and the prophets almost immediately change and say, I know things are tough, but things will get better. God has not forgotten you. So it's almost like when people are in the worst depression, God comes and says, please, come, I'm with you. I will not forgive, forget you. Or when they're in the greatest success and they have no need for God, 
the prophet says, you're coming down. <laughs> do you see how you can do sermons on this? Um, and that's what the prophets do. Now, towards the end of Jeremiah, he's going to be trying to build the people up because they're so discouraged. He says, no, this looks really bad, but it's not the end. Um, this, is, this is not the end. So we'll especially see that in Ezekiel. Um, low battery, what does that mean? <laughs> I can't make it move. Close. Oh. Thank you. Um, reread the call of Jeremiah and discuss what form the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Was it a voice from the clouds, an inner voice, a feeling? Why does he have this burning inside of him? Of course, the question is meant to get you to think about how God speaks to you. No, I, I'm just, this is a dramatic pause. So. <laughs> it's um, 8.25 on a Wednesday night. Many of you will work tomorrow. Many of you are tired. And it would be a lot easier to stay home and click on the TV. Why in the world are you here? That's what I was looking for. <laughs> you guys, that was a dramatic moment. And you both ruined it. You ruined it. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so that very feeling that Jeremiah had, it's not unique to him. I mean, that's, I mean it's in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here tonight. Um, question two, how does God call, make Jeremiah feel? Well, you already know that. Do you believe God has a plan or calling for you as he did for Jeremiah? How does God communicate with you? That is, how do you hear the word of the Lord for you? What are God's plans for you? Are you living them? What would you like to do with the rest of your life? Is that desire connected to God's call? Because it sometimes isn't. <laughs> Reread Jeremiah 31, 31 and discuss what it might mean for you to deeply, quote, know the Lord. What might knowing the Lord mean for our church? Do you see how this history lesson can become powerful spiritual moment, too? And don't ruin it. This is a dramatic pause, dramatic moment here, so... Um, we're right in the middle of a strategic plan about how we're going to move into the future as a church. And what is going to be under that plan is our mission statement, which takes very seriously the call of who we are in the world. We've done a really good job as a congregation nurturing people's faith here. Crossways has had 100 to 150 people every year, every other year for the last 10, 15 years. You are hearing stuff that is opening your eyes in a new way to looking at the Bible, looking at Scripture. But it all has to do with you coming here. We don't bring this message out. We don't project it very well. What would it look like to project this 
form of Christianity to a secular world that labels Christianity as either out of touch or completely judgmental or a political faction. That's what most of the world thinks of Christianity. And what would it look like for us to take seriously a passion that you have to come learn this yourself to begin projecting this, these ideas out into the world around us and to bring some challenge to the world around us. Do you follow how this becomes real? Um, we observe Jeremiah from a distance, but you would not be here if you didn't have that same passion. You would not be here, and neither would I. I had a little sixth grader come talk to me about confirmation today, and uh, they're just starting to come to the church, and he's just learning about confirmation, and he said, yeah, but, you know, I just don't believe all that stuff. He's a very smart, precocious, six, 12-year-old, um, straight-A kid. And he's already seeing through the Sunday school faith, you know, the Jonah story, and six days of creation, and an old guy sitting up there above the clouds with a harp. And it's like, you know, he's not going to buy into all that. And I said, listen, you don't have enough information right now to make that decision. He asked me, he had a list of questions. One of the questions was, you say this church is open and inclusive. What does that mean? And I told him just a little bit of what we do in Crossways. Just a little bit as a teaser to him. And I told him, I asked the same questions when I was your age. And I went to my pastor and I said, is there really a place called heaven up above the clouds somewhere? where people, you know, walk around and they have harps? I was sixth grade, 12 years old. He said yes. I knew he was lying. I knew he was lying because he, I knew he didn't think that, but he shared that with me. And that started me on this, this very path of why I teach what I teach because we have kids like that that need to hear this word. And it needs to go down to younger ages. They can handle it. And you now are getting the ammunition to do that kind of teaching. By the, by the time you're done with two years of Crossways, you'll be ready to teach Sunday school. Confirmation class. I mean, most of our Sunday school teachers, confirmation folks, they've taken Crossways. And they pave the way for the future. I've sat in on some vacation Bible school teachers who I watch them as they deal with miracle stories and how they downplay the, the, the scientific side of things and they upplay the, um, the, the meaning of the story, of the miracle, and not just the surface stuff. So what we do here is really, really important. And I think that this class for many of you is like a call. It's like Jeremiah's call. And you say, oh, this is so interesting. I've never looked at the Bible this way. But you're also not understanding this is a call. Not just a head trip. And it's going to start moving from here down into here. And you will not be able to help yourself because you want to get this word. With that, let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you for Jeremiah sharing his 
deepest feelings and thoughts about your call to his life. He lived his life faithfully, O Lord, dangerously, but faithfully. He sought to do your will and to work your promise. Now, O Lord, we are the ones in our living years, and you speak to us as surely as you spoke to him. You speak to us and say, we have a calling to bring love and compassion, challenge and confrontation to injustice and all those things that drive people down. Help us, O Lord, as individuals and as a congregation to be Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and all the other prophets who seek to accomplish your goodwill. In your holy and most blessed name, we close with the prayer you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.